0: Welcome everyone. To this week's edition of Fair Territory. I'm going to begin this show with a number. The number is 175. You might ask Ken, what's up with 175? That is the number of remaining free agents right now. Yes, 175 remaining free agents. Spring training is a month away. I'm getting that number from MLBTradeRumors.com's list of available free agents. I don't know that it's exact to the exact, exact number, but it's pretty close. And we've talked a lot about the big four, the Scott Boris four. Cody Bellinger, Matt Chapman, Blake Snell, Jordan Montgomery. We've talked a lot about those guys. We'll continue talking a lot about those guys. But there are a number of other players out there, good players. And I want to take you through some partial lists Just to show you where we are on January 16th as free agency continues. So let's start with some hitters, and then we'll go through with pitchers and relievers, the whole gamut of players. These are some of the remaining free agent hitters. Now, I'm not pretending these lists are complete, so if your favorite player is not on it, don't go howling and screaming. This is just a partial list. Brandon Belt, Adam Duval, Kike Hernandez, Reese Hoskins, Trey Mancini, J.D. Martinez, Jock Peterson, Eddie Rosario, Jorge Soler, Michael A. Taylor, Justin Turner, Joey Votto. Again, I'm excluding Bellinger and Chapman for purposes of this exercise. I want to show you the rest of the players that are still out there, or at least a portion of them. All right, let's go to the next phase here of this discussion. This would be remaining free agent starters. Not as many. Mike Clevenger, Zach Greinke, Clayton Kershaw, Michael Lorenzen, James Paxton, Hyun Jin Ryu. Some pretty good pitchers still available in free agency. And finally, the relievers. This list is quite lengthy, and I couldn't get to them all. But we'll show you some of them right here. Ryan Brazier, John Brebbia, Eroldis Chapman, Matt Moore, Hector Neris, David Robertson, and Robert Stevenson. So what do we take from this? What do we take from the fact that a month away from spring training, 175 free agents remain? Well, it's a few things. Let's just take a global view from the start right now. Some players, as happens every year, will be driven out of the game. That's the natural course of the game. It's the Darwinian element of this. Not every player plays every year. Some players, some of the guys we just saw on those lists, will still get decent contracts. I expect that. And some will not get decent contracts. Some will be forced to sign low guarantees, some will be forced to sign minor league contracts. Now we've seen this pattern before. We've seen slow off-seasons before. And this off-season, okay, some things happened that kept matters on hold. Shohei Otani, that held up the market. Yoshinobu Yamamoto, that held up the market. And now we have the Boris four. Again, Bellinger, Chapman, Snell, Montgomery. You can argue that to some extent they are holding up the market as well. However, I don't know that they're holding up the DH market, for example. I don't know that they're holding up all these other outfielders. Not all of them are going to be Cody Bellinger. So, at this point, you kind of have to wonder what's going on. So, perhaps the bigger issue is this. And this is an issue that has taken place for a number of recent off-seasons. Clubs have figured out that the longer you wait on certain types of players the more their prices will be driven down, the better their prices will be from a club's perspective. Now, I'm not going to say it's collusion. You can't prove it's collusion. And actually, I don't even know that it's that coordinated. Again, I just think the teams have kind of gamed the system here and they know what they're doing. Now, in some cases, agents might be at fault too. I spoke with a GM yesterday who was in the DH market. And he said to me, I want to get this done already, but I can't get the agents to move. Now, I don't know why that is, and none of the agents that I tried to reach about this responded to me, but perhaps there are other things at work. Perhaps they're all waiting for better deals and holding out and holding out, and it's to their own detriment. I don't know. Maybe it's not to their detriment. Maybe they'll get the deals that they're seeking. Hard to know. So what's the answer to all this? I'm not sure there is one and I know some fans don't see it as a problem at all, but to me, a deadline here is an interesting idea, a signing deadline of some sort. I'm not going to get into the mechanics of it right now, how it would work. I'm sure if I proposed one idea, you could find 103 faults with it. But the deadline is not something that's going to happen anytime soon, if it ever happens at all. The league has proposed signing deadlines in the past, and We saw before the 2021 lockout how quickly things could move with the deadline, how a frenzy could take place. You remember what happened. The lockout was beginning December 1st, and then right in the week before December 1st, teams were scrambling to get players signed because they wanted them under their control before the lockout started. That was a crazy week of free agency, actually probably a crazy three or four days. It was the action that we all kind of crave. Similar to the NBA, similar to the NFL. So the league has proposed a deadline. They've done it multiple times. The union has always said no. And the union has said no because it believes that any kind of restrictions on the market, whether it's through a cap or whether it's through some kind of time restriction, a deadline, that will inhibit the market, that will hurt players. I'm not sure that's accurate. They might be right. It's their job to have a feel for the market, and I would suggest that, in many ways, they have a better feel than certain sports writers would. But, I don't know, with 175 free agents remaining, with a month to go before spring training, I don't know that you can say the current system is working optimally for players either. Time now for the inside dish. This is the part of the show where I go inside a story I've written, inside a trend in the game, or sometimes... I just talk about a player, tell some stories about that player, and kind of go about it that way. Today is going to be one of those days. And it's going to be one of those days because Albert Pujols, the great Pujols, turns 44 today. Happy birthday, Albert. I thought I'd take a moment to share some personal reflections on maybe the best right-handed hitter I've ever seen. Now, Albert, let's go through the numbers because if you go back and look at them, even a couple of years removed now from his playing career, they are staggering. 703 home runs. That's fourth all-time behind Bonds, Aaron, and Ruth. 3,384 hits. That is 10th all-time. Albert is eligible for the Hall in 2028. He becomes eligible the same year as his former Cardinals teammate, Yadier Molina. So that should be a cool moment in Cooperstown. And yes, Molina is getting in. He should be first ballot for me. I know you're going to argue, or some sabermetricians are going to argue, they're the numbers. No, 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 no. or Molina, Hall of Famer. But we digress. People often ask me, what are the players like? What's this guy like? Is he cool? What is this guy like? And I can't really answer that question. All I know about a player's personality is how he acts toward me, toward other members of the media. I don't see him with his family. I don't even really see him with his teammates, except in certain group settings. So, how a player treats a writer, how a player treats a group of writers, that's hardly an indication of his character, good or bad. It might be a tiny slice, but it really doesn't tell you much at all. But if I had to choose one word to describe Albert in all my years of covering him, I guess the word I would use is gruff. Now, some writers have better relationships with certain players than others. That's just the way it is. That's the way it is in real life, too. My relationship with Pujols was okay. He could be quite engaging at times, and other times he could be kind of prickly. Toward the end of his career, I found him to be much warmer, and I thought perhaps he was a little bit like Bonds, so focused on his success, so locked into what he was doing on a day-to-day basis. He had no patience, no time, for the media game. If he came off as edgy, it's because he wanted to maintain a certain edge. That was what drove him as a player. That's what he felt he needed to do. I've never asked Albert about this. I don't know that that's the case, but that was the impression I got. So anyway, I want to tell you one story. It's my favorite Albert Pujols story. It doesn't necessarily reflect well on him, but I don't know that it reflects that badly either. It kind of sums up all of what I'm saying. This goes back to the 2011 World Series, Cardinals versus Rangers. In Game 2, Albert failed to cut off a throw in the ninth inning. Elvis Andrews advanced to 2nd base, eventually scored the winning run in a 2-1 Rangers victory. So after the game, reporters gather at Pujol's locker, waiting for him, just wanting to get an explanation for what happened on that play. And one reason we talk to players is to find out what was going through their minds, what might have occurred that we might not have seen that might have explained a situation on the field. So we gather at his locker. He never showed. Other Cardinals, Yadier Molina, Lance Berkman, Matt Holliday, also never showed at their lockers. For whatever reason, that's what happened that night. So the next day was an off day. Remember, Game 2 is played, off day, travel day. Game 3 is the day after that. A lot of writers were critical of Pujols on the off day in their stories leading up to Game 3, and they basically said, hey, you've got to be accountable, you've got to be at your locker to explain a play like that, otherwise your teammates have to do it for you. And fans often ask me, Ken, what's the difference if they talk or not? Why are you bothering the players? Well, it's all about accountability, and it's all about taking the heat off your teammates who might have to answer your questions for you. Derek Jeter was perhaps the best at this. Derek Jeter was at his locker every single night, win or lose. He wasn't always interesting. In fact, he was rarely interesting. But he showed his teammates, hey, I'm going to stand up. I am going to be accountable. And as a result, his teammates were often usually accountable too. Now, my column the next day wasn't so much a criticism of Pujols as it was kind of an explanation of what I just said, why it's beneficial for players to talk, for a number of reasons. It's the direct way to communicate with fans. I went through the whole thing. Again, I wouldn't call it a rip job by any stretch of the imagination, at least compared to some of the other things that were written. Okay, so we go to Game 3. What happens at Game 3? Albert Pujols, three home runs, a historic night, one of the great World Series performances in recent memory, maybe ever. After the game... I interview him for Fox. That's normally what happens when a guy hits three home runs at a World Series game and his team wins. I do the interview. Albert answers the questions. But as he's answering the questions, he's not looking at me. He's really not looking anywhere close to me. He's kind of staring off into the outfield. The interview is over. I sort of think nothing of it. Walking back to the production truck. I'm not like reacting one way or the other. I'm not even upset. I'm not anything. It's just the interview's over. I got to go right now and let's go. But when I get back to the truck, this is where the Fox people are, the producer, the director and with playoff games often are executives as well. Our head of Fox Sports at the time, Ed Gorin is in the truck. He of course has watched the interview and he is livid. He is livid because of the way it came off because it looked like Albert was being disrespectful, he was staring off into the sky, he was not really engaged, all of that. And Ed Gorin had a point. This is the showcase event for baseball, the World Series. And you want your players to kind of be with it. And what Albert did, it certainly wasn't a great look. Now, of course, Albert Pujols is an analyst for MLB Network. And there was a recent story about him in his new job and it detailed how Albert was working just as hard at this job as he worked as a baseball player. He wants to be great as an analyst. And it's always interesting to me when certain players become members of the media and they see the other side. It's all fine. It's all good. And actually, with Albert Pujols, forget anything that might have happened in our interactions or anything at all like that. It's not really relevant. What is relevant is that he was a singular pleasure to watch on an everyday basis. I loved watching this guy hit. And you know what? I loved our back and forths over the years, too. Happy birthday, Albert. Happy birthday, number five. Time now for Dude and Dork of the Week. Dude of the Week. I don't often like to honor players simply because they're making a lot of money. But I'm going to honor a player who's making a lot of money because his career to this point well, his earnings have reflected what he has accomplished, and he's going to accomplish even more going forward. I feel relatively comfortable saying that. Juan Soto due to the week, and here's why. $31 million in arbitration, that is what his settlement was for. That is the highest salary ever for an arbitration-eligible player. Beats Shohei Ohtani's $30 million from last year. Also, Soto, in part because he was eligible for arbitration four years and not the typical three he was a super two, his career earnings in arbitration alone, 79.6 million, almost $80 million just in arbitration. That too is a record. And as I wrote the other day, for all that money, if you look at Juan Soto's war, his career war, or his war even during that four-year period, and you assign an $8 million value per each point of war, That probably is a low estimate. Some people say now war is worth one war is worth 9 million or 10 million, whatever. The earnings or the actual value is something like 220 million. And he's earned 80 million. So he's provided some bang for the buck. And let's face it, he is going to get one more big payday once he becomes a free agent. And I assume he will become a free agent and not sign an extension with the Yankees. I expect he's going to get $500 million in free agency, and I expect that it won't be deferred. <laughs> he's going to get his money, and he's going to get it up front. Juan Soto, great player, of course. We're all looking forward to seeing him play at Yankee Stadium due to the week because of all that he has accomplished and all the money he has earned in his career. Dork of the week, we had some interesting candidates this week. We had yours truly for the column on Wander Franco. I certainly was a candidate, and am a candidate, and in the eyes of many viewers and listeners, might be the guy. We also had ESPN for using over a 13-year period, fake names that they submitted for Emmy Awards, and then they had to give the Emmys back. It was a whole to-do. As documented by The Athletic's Katie Strang, one of the great athletic stories ever. Okay. Two candidates there, myself, ESPN, but we're going to go with one of my old employers and one of my good friends, MLB Network and Brian Kenny. And this is not a grudge kind of thing. Well, not against the network anyway. Brian, different story. And Brian and the MLB Network are dorks of the week because of their wonderful top 10 list as comprised by the shredder. Now, let's take a look at a tweet from a friend of mine, Jared Sandler, play-by-play man, studio host for the Texas Rangers, about the omission of Jonah Heim, World Series winning catcher, all-star, gold glove winner from the top 10 catchers. Here is what Jared had to say. I'm sorry. Jonah Heim was the all-star catcher who won a gold glove, was one of the top offensive performing catchers, and helped lead a team to a World Series, and he isn't even on this list? Is this a joke? The list is comprised of Adley Rushman, Will Smith, Sean Murphy, JT Romuto, William Contreras, Wilson Contreras, Alejandro Kirk, Jainer Diaz, Cal Raleigh, and Gabriel Moreno. All fine players, but my goodness, Jonah Heim belongs somewhere in there, probably on or in the top five. Now, when I was at MLB Network, many years, I often went back and forth with Mr. Brian Kenny, and the top ten lists were occasionally subject to debate, and I would tell Brian who, or ask him, I would ask Brian, who is the shredder? Are you the shredder? Where are we getting the shredder from? And it was some kind of compilation of computer analysis, and Brian would always demand that if you had an opinion on a player, you had to give your objective methodology. Well, I would like to know the objective methodology that omitted Jonah Heim from the top 10 catchers. BK, you are welcome to address this at any time. And I'm taking this and using this opportunity to jab at BK because I know. I know that I need a preemptive strike because once the Hall of Fame vote is announced, he is going to assail, as he does every year, the voting members of the Baseball Writers Association of America, the people he calls the brethren. BK, dork of the week, we're coming at you first. Time now for Brilliant Ken. Let's get to your questions. The first question comes from Machado Runs SD, Ruben Vasquez. He asks, why do you hate San Diego every chance you get, small dog? Now, I always love a good short comment. I've been short for, let's see, 61 years now. You can't get me with that. You ask me, as Padre fans have recently and often, why do I hate the Padres? Why do I hate San Diego? Mets fans ask why I hate the Mets. Orioles fans have been asking ever since I was at the Baltimore Sun ah, 35 years ago why I hate the Orioles. Other teams at various points ask why I hate their team. The Phillies have been in this conversation once in a while. This is not unusual for me. And I get it. Some fans take offense when a national writer writes critically about their team. That, however, is my job. And I'm going to continue doing it. And I do it knowing that there is not a lot of this being done nationally anymore, and The Athletic is a particularly aggressive outlet. That is the way we have fashioned it. That is the way we want it to be. Now, specifically with the Padres, I believe I wrote twice about them last year. Once was in May when they played the Dodgers, got beaten a series at Dodger Stadium, and I kind of compared the two clubs, and obviously it was not a favorable comparison for the Padres, the way they were run, the way they were constructed, etc. And then for the second straight year... Dennis Lynn and I combined on a long story at the end of the year, detailing the team's problems, the financial issues, the internal issues, the fissure between general manager A.J. Preller and manager Bob Melvin that eventually led to Melvin's departure. I don't necessarily consider two articles, and maybe there was a third in there somewhere, to be a crusade of any kind, but I understand fans have this perception. And I remember also that when A.J. Preller... Had a press conference at the end of the season and he questioned our use of unnamed sources and said he doesn't take much or put much credence in that. I came back on this show and kind of fired back at him because much of what we said, virtually all of what we said, has kind of come to pass. Now, that doesn't mean that this thing can't turn around tomorrow, but the Padres, you look at them right now, they're not in a great spot. Starting pitching beyond the top three, if you include Michael King, not great. The outfield really includes only Tatis Jr. So, again, it's my job to look at teams critically and to analyze them. I don't have a grudge or a favorite or anything like that. This is a job. And you want to know my favorite team growing up? The Mets were my favorite team growing up. I grew up on Long Island and in Queens. And Mets fans routinely say, why are you so mean to Steve Cohen? It's just part of the job. All right, let's go to the next question now. The next question comes from Jordan, also known as Darth Lung, who asks, in capital letters, what are the Angels doing? I wrote about the Angels the other day in my latest notes column, and I explained that they're basically in on everyone and anyone. Pitchers, hitters, expensive guys, cheaper guys, you name it, they're trying. What they're going to do, however, remains to be seen. They sort of like their position group. They know they need another infielder type to protect with Rendon, of course, being always hurt. But they like their group in general. They want to add pitching, first and foremost. They're dabbling in Snell. They're going to dabble in some of these other guys as well. But as I wrote, Artie Moreno as an owner has not been one to spend big on free agent pitchers. Their biggest pitching signing ever was Jared Weaver. He was an extension. That was an $85 million deal. Their biggest free agent pitcher was C.J. Wilson, $77.5 million. That was the year they signed Pujols, 2011. So it's not something they generally do. They bid for Cole a few years back, but didn't work out. So I would expect they're going to supplement with a few different things. I don't know that they're going to do anything on a major scale. All right, final question comes from JD, Johnny D 49 who asks, Have teams finally gotten to the point where no team will give in to Boris's insane contract demands? JD, if we had this show 10 years running now, and of course we don't. This is our first year. But if we had it 10 years running, I would assume we would have gotten a question like that virtually every year. And virtually every year, GMs, agents, writers say this is the year he finally gets caught. This is the year Boris isn't going to get what he wants. And occasionally, in individual examples, you will see that. Michael Conforto was an example. Of course, he got hurt, but he had turned down some money. I can think of some other examples, too, over the years of players who did not meet expectations. But more often than not, with the big players, the stars, he does get something resembling what he is aiming for, or at least what we think is a good contract. I think Snell's getting paid. I think Jordan Montgomery's getting paid, Cody Bellinger's getting paid, and Matt Chapman's getting paid. Those four. Those are the big four. How it all shakes out, I don't know. But so many times in my career, so many times over the last 10, 20 years, I've thought, "Uh uh-uh, he's not going to get it this time. And almost always he does. So while teams have maybe wised up to a certain degree, all it takes is one. And all it takes is one to sign any player— And I expect there will be one team for each of the big four that Scott Boris represents. Thanks, everyone, for your questions. Thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. You know where to find us. YouTube, Apple, Spotify. Like, subscribe. Do whatever you'd like. We'll be back next week. Regular schedule, Monday. Thanks, everyone, and have a great week. We've got a new offer for the FT fam with the same bonus code, FOUL, F-O-U-L. Bet $5, get $158 instantly. Place your first BetMGM Sportsbook wager through the BetMGM Sportsbook app of at least $5, and you'll receive $158 instantly in additional winnings regardless of your wager's outcome. Download the BetMGM Sportsbook app, sign up and deposit at least $5 into your newly created account, Place a wager in the amount of at least $5 at standard odds price. And once you've placed a bet, you'll receive $158 in bonus bets, regardless of the outcome of your wager. Again, that's bonus code FOUL, F-O-U-L. Gambling problem More concern? Call 1-800-GAMBLER.